At special times, believers in the Old and New Testaments believe that they ought to make covenants together vowing that they would obey King Jesus. Following in their footsteps, in 1638, Scottish Christians signed the National Covenant which rejected the enforcement of prelacy on the Presbyterian Church. When threatened to have these rights taken away, the Scottish Covenanters in 1639 united under the Blue Banner which read, For Christ's Crown and Covenant. As direct theological descendants of the Scottish Covenanters, the RPCNA still honors the Blue Banner for what it stands for, that Jesus is the only head and king of his church. The Blue Banter podcast's goal is to go about informing the reforming by introducing you to our pastors and under-shepherds of Christ's church. By listening to this podcast, you will have greater clarity on the blessings and challenges faced by each of our congregations. We pray that the Lord blesses you through this podcast for Christ's crown and his covenant. Well, we want to welcome all to this episode of the Blue Banter Podcast. As we've said before, our goal in this podcast is to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and also to serve aspiring young pastors uh, like ourselves by getting insights uh, from men with ministry experience. I'm Joe Smith, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. And my name is Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in the beautiful vacation destination that is Marion, Indiana. We have everything that you need. We've got your Walmart. We've got your Lowe's. We've got not one, but two McDonald's fast food restaurants. So if you're looking for a place to relax, come on over. We may have at least one Airbnb. We've got a couple of hotels. It's a great place. You guys will love it. Um, we are joined with my uh, good friend, George Gregory. I uh, interned under George for uh, about two years while I was at seminary. And George, it's a real pleasure to have you on our podcast. It's, uh, it's great to be here. It's good to see see your face, as always. Yeah. Good to talk with you. Yeah, it's good uh, good to see you. Yeah, Joe, good to good to talk with you too. Likewise, likewise. So, George, you are what I think you're basically like a Superman. You're a very busy guy. You've got a lot of responsibilities. You're you're a pastor. You're a father of a whole gaggle of kids. You've got a whole bunch of other responsibilities that you're juggling. One of those responsibilities was you were recently appointed the moderator of the uh, POA Presbytery. Um, so kind of help us out. What's that like going from um, just a presbyter who's kind of involved in the discussions now to a moderator? Um, what are the, some of the things that uh, you've enjoyed about being a moderator? What are some things maybe that you've learned? What are some things that um, as you have been a moderator, you could maybe prepare uh, Joe and I for whenever we're appointed in 25 years, if we you know earn that right? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it's sooner than 25 years. Um well, it's it's been something. It, it's it was uh, quite the intimidating proposition whenever it was presented to me. Um, just thinking about being the one who needs to keep all of these men in order. Not that they're disorderly men, but just wanting to make sure that you have uh, things running smoothly and uh, efficiently, but also in a way that honors Christ and honors the the time of these men. Um, that they have because these are these are all shepherds of God's people, right? And their their time is is being valuably used in in the in the church in their local churches. And so, any time away from their local church and from their families um, ought to be for a valuable thing. Presbytery is a valuable thing, but I don't, I certainly don't want it to be um, 
I want it to be at as efficient time as possible. So, you know, we're doing what we need to do well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it was an intimidating thing. And um, I think one of the, one of the differences about being, uh, I don't know, a participant in Presbytery as opposed to being a moderator um, in, a, in a different way participating, but um, that I didn't recognize right away was the fact that you are not actively involved in any of the discussion or the debate that's happening, right? And so you, you don't really get an opportunity to to speak into um, one side or the other of any issue. You're not voting on anything, which is, is just, it's kind of, it was new, it was weird. You know, so on the one hand, it was in a way is somewhat relieving, mm. right? Because uh, as, a, as a good moderator should be, you're kind of a, you're removed from that um, because you're trying to do things very justly and very carefully. Um, but on the other hand, it was in a, in a way somewhat disappointing because I couldn't be engaged in some of the, you know, the thought and the discussion. And, you know, of course you read the stuff and you have your own thoughts about things, but yeah, I sort of missed the, the opportunity to engage in the courts of the church and the discussions in that way. So, um, yeah, so that's something that I hadn't thought of and it was certainly a new experience for me, but, uh, so yeah, the way the, the POA does things is you're. Well, m most Presbyterians, you're, you're elected for the year. I was uh, elected in the spring meeting of the previous year, but didn't begin serving until the synod meeting of Presbytery. And that's always a really short meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a nice little sort of get your feet wet into the into the realm of moderating. And then the full scope comes at the fall meeting. Um, and then at the spring meeting will be my last, uh, last time there. But I, I think... I think it went well. Um, it's again a very intimidating thing to look out over all of these men that you respect and you know look up to in many ways. I mean, I, I don't consider myself to be uh, an overly young man, but I don't consider myself to be an overly seasoned man either. Mm -hmm. And um, so, looking looking down on these men from up, you know, at the podium, uh, men I looked up to is is kind of I don't know. It's sobering, mm -hmm. but. You know, as I prepared, I just tend to be a pretty organized guy um, as it is. And so one of the ways I prepared for for that task is or really any meeting like our congregational meetings, if I'm moderating that is I actually sit down and look over the agenda. And our clerk's fantastic. Martin Blocky's our clerk of the POA, and he he really lays out things really well. And so he and I got together and worked through the agenda to see exactly what what needed to happen when and when we were going to deal with things. And I took that agenda and I, I kind of worked up a, a very, very, very detailed outline, a very step by step process of like every single step of the way, walking through the welcome of everybody to the courts mm -hmm. um, all the way to adjournment. You know, uh, what vote needed to happen when, what who needed to be asked for what, when committees needed to be appointed. So a very detailed script even of how things would go. That way I wouldn't get lost or flustered. Um, I, I understand not everybody's like that, but it really helped me and guide um, how things would go. I kept little time frames on how long I thought we should spend on things. And, you know, I had a margin section so I could keep a tally of how, who was speaking to what and on what side of the issue and how many mm -hmm. times they spoke just to keep all that in order. I kept a little page of, you know, the Robert's uh, roar or truncated version of Robert's mm -hmm. rules and, you know, what motions overruled other motions or took precedent, things like that. So. Um, so it took a lot of time, 
Um, maybe not everybody put that much time into it, but I, I put a lot of time into trying to prep for for the moderator role. So well, yeah, I, I think it's important that people um, hear that not only uh, all the ruling elders and uh, teaching elders who are participating in presbytery, but also just the members of our churches to see it's a great sacrifice for our men to be moderating our presbyteries and how much time actually does go into it um, and how much energy and all the emotions involved, that kind of thing. Um, so I appreciate you, you sharing uh, with that with us. Um, I, uh, I've only heard good things about you as moderator. Joe, you've got the, the next question. Yeah, real quick before I move on too much, George, I'd just be interested. Um, I assume being moderator of presbytery has and will bear fruit, making you a better moderator of your own session meetings and just your whole experience with that. What are just maybe off top of your head? I know this, um, you haven't had maybe time to think through this. What are some things that guys like Aaron and I or other guys uh, could be applying in our own session meetings so that we would maybe be more equipped if, 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 and when we were called uh, to be moderator and it wouldn't be um, so much of a, of a shock and trying to scramble at once, but some things that guys could, could implement now in their session meetings and moderating those to prepare them for potentially moderating presbytery or even, even a synod meeting. Yeah. Um, I think one of the first things I'd recommend is truly and seriously familiarize yourself with, with the blue book. Um, I mean, that's there for a reason and it, it's actually an extremely valuable resource that um, our, our brothers and fathers put together to help, help the church of Jesus Christ run well uh, to be run decently and in order. And it really, it might be crazy to say something like this, but I mean, it really is a beautiful thing um, to, to see um, how well the church can function. And, uh, and so knowing that well will really help prepare you and equip you to know what to do. That way you're not scrambling or you're caught flat footed and like, I don't know what to do in this situation. So, you know, re reading through it, um, occasionally, you know, kind of making, even making your writing your own outline based on it, just so you have the flow in your mind and even coming up with some you know, random scenarios and, and plugging them in and seeing what, okay, well, how would the book deal with this? Or how would I deal with this based on the book, um, is a helpful exercise. Um, one of the things that we have done as a session in just trying to familiarize our whole, our whole session with the blue book is, um, I know different different men do things differently as far as what their devotional time or study time looks like in their session meetings, but we began the process of actually working through the blue book um, as a study time right at the beginning of our session meetings. And part of that had to do with we were bringing on a new elder, and so that was a great opportunity to help bring him up to speed with how the church courts operate and you know how we do things. But it's always a really good refresher and reminder for all of the men as we're working through things. So you know, starting with the book of, you know, church government, uh, book of discipline, worship. I mean, we're, we've just been marching through section by section um, and the guys are reading it and they're applying it and it's been great. And, um, and one of the things that I have actually started doing as the moderator of, moderator of our session is applying into the session meeting uh, because session meetings can sometimes become real like free for alls and they can, they can weave all over the place and take some significant rabbit trails and it's hard to keep things flowing well. Um, and so one of the things that we started doing as a group is really trying to hold to the procedures that 
we have laid out for us, which actually we're supposed to be applying at every every level of the church of uh, courts of the church. So that is actually what prepared me, I think, for presbytery instead of the other way around, um, was just actually fleshing those things out in the context of the smaller court of the church. And then all I needed to do was just think of it in a bigger context. So that's something you you know might be able to do. And it trains them too. So they know how to better function in the courts of the church. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. Um, kind of getting to our second question. Uh, I remember a lot of us were just really blessed by Dr. Whitla's class um, that had yourself, Kyle Borg, and Pete Smith speaking to um, the blessings and challenges of rural, suburban, and urban ministry. And so uh, we kind of wanted to replicate that, or at least some some aspects of it and some points for, for anybody who may be listening to this, members or, or guys in seminary, uh, whatever. But so we already had Kyle on, you know, and he, he was talking about rural uh, ministry. Uh, Lord willing, we'll have Pete on in February, and we'll be asking him about urban ministry. And so... Uh, we wanted to ask you to, to kind of give some of the blessings and challenges that you presented to, to us as seminary students uh, for guys who may be thinking through calls or just anybody interested in this. What are the blessings and challenges of suburban ministry? Yeah. Um, well, thinking of the blessings, I mean, oftentimes, you know, suburban contexts lend themselves to being um, more affluent areas. Right. So generally, when you're thinking of suburban context, you're thinking middle, sometimes upper class uh, folks. And generally speaking, your suburban context is going to provide um, more resources for you to do ministry and not just financial resources, but um, people resources as well. Suburban churches tend to be a little larger um, than others. And so that really opens up a, a wide variety of opportunities for you to minister in various ways and to draw on the resources that the Lord has blessed you with um, to, to pursue whatever he's called you to do in that particular area. And so that's a great, that's a great blessing. And one of the other blessings of being in a suburban context too, is that oftentimes because there is a greater number of people um often traveling from different areas, you you actually get a pretty diverse group of people too. So in your congregation, you could have you know engineers, you could have doctors, you could have photographers, you could have mechanics, you could have construction workers, you know, dentists, whatever, and a wide variety of professions even that can really be used to bless the members of the congregation, but even be used as as a vehicle of outreach as you're ministering to the community. And seeking to apply works of mercy into the community, there's a lot of expertise and experience to draw from as well. So that's a great blessing. And I mentioned people can come from a, a wide variety of backgrounds, but also they come from a wide variety of areas too. So a lot of times suburban churches are populated not by a concentrated group of people living in the same area, but it's not uncommon to have people driving, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes to the congregation from, you know, all directions. And sometimes those people come from pockets of areas to your congregation, which lends to the opportunity to have Bible studies, um, kind of like satellite Bible studies in different areas of, uh, away from the actual physical building of the church, which is a great way to impact a wider area for the sake of the ministry and perhaps even can blossom into church planning opportunities as well. So 
those are some of the blessings that you know suburban context can can provide. There's certainly more, but those are the some of the first that come to mind. But when I think of, you know, I think of some of the difficulties or challenges, the one that always comes to the top of my mind is just the busyness of life. And that's that's a situation that has infected every every area of American life as it is. Um, but it really does impact the, you know, the suburban church community quite a bit. There's just so much people are involved in. And whether it's, you know, with activities at their school or maybe their homeschooling families. And so they're devoting a lot of their time to the homeschooling. There's a lot of sports to be engaged in. Um, a lot of other extracurricular activities they can be involved in. And if your church is bigger and has more resources, you might actually have a lot of activities happening in at your church. And so people are trying to be engaged in that as well. And so um, people are really busy and people can get burned out pretty easily. And um, so that's always a, a difficulty and a danger. And if people are busy and if they're at a distance, it, it can also create a situation where there's a lack of connectedness among the people in your congregation. Um, people are so busy, they just don't have the time to spend together during the week. And so the only time they really see each other is on the Lord's Day. And so it's there's a lack of connectedness that can result, especially if they're driving, you know, 20 minutes in either direction from the church. That means those people are 40 minutes from each other. They're not going to see each other. And sometimes it's hard as a pastor too to shepherd people who are at great distance as well, because just the number of people and how far they are from you to get to them um, makes it quite difficult, especially if you have a large family um, like I do, you know, trying to take extra time away from the home is really difficult. So um, that can tend to lead people to see you sort of as just the preacher um, you know, or the problem solver, you know, you, people only come to you for those things and, and there's a lack of connectedness that you might have with the congregation. So those are maybe some of the difficulties that you would find. Uh -huh. I, I don't remember, George, if this was you who said it, but did you make a point as well, theological centrism to the Lord's Day for worship and things like that? But was it you that mentioned in the context of suburban ministry that there can kind of be a need for a, a practical or pragmatic centrism to the Lord's Day as far as of trying to load it up with things, knowing that it's hard for people to to get to things during the week? Was that Was that a comment you made or am I... Was that from maybe somewhere else? No, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, um, it's it's already a day that people have set aside for for coming to the Lord's house, right, and being with the Lord's people, and so it's easier to schedule things on that day. And I think I was speaking in, in context to like fellowship meals. Um, that's a great opportunity to build that connectedness and the intimacy that you want to have with your people. And if you schedule it as a, you know a fellowship lunch after after morning worship. You know, people need to eat anyway, and they're already there, and it's already a day they have set aside. So it's a very natural connecting point for people that they don't have to add something additional to their schedule throughout the week. And so it's a great way to begin to build fellowship and intimacy with members of the congregation, uh, and it's not super hard to pull off. Um, but, you know, trying to load the day too full also has its downsides. And so, you know, you don't want to necessarily load it up too much, but... Um, trying to provide a very convenient opportune moment for people to get together is, is ideal in my mind. Awesome. Thank you, Aaron. What do you got yeah. next for us? Well, yeah, before we go on, I do want to say like, there is something really unique about Hope community, George, where you pastor. Um, 
because it is suburban and, and, and like you said mm-hmm. uh, many of the members there are traveling but what's what's also unique is that half the church kind of lives within you know two miles of each other yeah. um so you, you walk around college hill and uh, you've got a schedule basically 15 extra minutes into your walk because you're going to be running into people from church um, so so there's a real blessing in that um, mm-hmm. that you kind of get both both you get the the community church as well as kind of a commuter um mm-hmm. as well where you've got the bible studies branching out and um or willing church plants that kind of thing so Hope community is very special to me, uh, as I know it is to you. Yes, it was. Uh, so as we kind of talk about um, your own ministry, so we've talked about the blessings and challenges of suburban ministry in general, but now more particularly when it comes to um, you personally as a pastor, we want to talk about um, your preaching and your shepherding. Um, so first, the preaching. When you think about your philosophy of preaching, um, what kind of comes to mind? What are some uh, things that are special about preaching that, that you consider very, very important. And then um, what does your kind of weekend, week out um, sermon preparation look like? Yeah, well, pre- preaching is um, the, the high point of the week. It's the high point of the worship service for the people of God. I mean, this this is when God speaks to his people. It's not the only time and place, but I mean, this is this is where God speaks very specifically and profoundly uh, to his people um, through the reading and the preaching of the word by the power of the spirit. And this is where God um, transforms and this is the vehicle through which God transforms his people. And so um, it's not something to ever be neglected or shortened or um, or thought little of. And um, and so it's a precious thing. And we want to always keep that central in what we do. Um, I mean, I'm utterly convinced that um, God changes people through his word by the spirit. And, you know, of course, that takes place in personal Bible reading or small group studies, but profoundly and especially in the preaching of God's word. And so um, it's of utmost importance as far as, you know, as far as, as, you know, as I think about preaching, as I approach God's word, I approach it as not something that I am going to study to give to those people or to give to other people or to give to my people even. But when I think about God's word and as I approach it to prepare to preach, I I think about it as this is what God is communicating to us, you know, and uh, yes, there is a sense in which I'm God's mouthpiece to to speak to God's people in a prophetic sense. Um, but I also recognize that I'm, I'm standing under this, this word as well. Like this is a word for me as well. And that's always important to keep in mind because it keeps you humble. It keeps the proper perspective. And, you know, more often than not, whenever you find God's word speaking to you, it's speaking to other people as well. Uh, Cause you're no different than they, than they are. Um, and so I found, you know, as I'm preparing my sermons and preparing to preach, you know, what is the Lord saying to me in this? And what is the Lord saying to to his people in this congregation? Very often it's the same thing. Um, so coming with the humility to God's word in that way is is important. But, you know, as I prepare to study each week, you know, I, I take Mondays off. That's my, you know, my day off. So Tuesday is really the first time I'm hitting hitting the ground to, to start opening up God's word. And um, I generally have where I'm going mapped out as far as text. So I know I'm going to approach. And I, I read it 
and immediately I'm like, Lord, help me, help me understand this. Uh, please help me understand this, especially right now. I'm going through Ecclesiastes. And so I'm like, I'm begging, Lord, help, please help me. Um, but, you know, but even well-known, well-known texts, well-known scriptures, it's a, it's a foolish thing to think that you can just t- come to a text and be like, yeah, I know what this means. I can just move mm-hmm. forward. But um, you need the Lord's wisdom and the Lord's guidance. And um, so read the word, pray that the spirit's going to work. And that's what I do. And so Tuesday is just getting myself familiarized with the particular text and praying for wisdom that the Lord would open it up. And I, I try and I hope to have a good sense of where the text is going by Tuesday, Wednesday or so. And, um, you know, what's the main point of this passage? Start to develop a rough outline where the text is going, you know, where I want to go with it. By Thursday uh, and on Wednesday as well, I begin reading commentaries as well and start to just really marinate in in what other folks are saying about the text and what I'm thinking about the text. That way, I kind of get all that stuff in my head. And then throughout the week, I'm just kind of marinating on it every day and thinking about it every day. Mm-hmm. And it's coming together throughout the week at every point of the day. And so then, you know, Lord willing, by Thursday, Friday, I have... I have a pretty good outline as far as where I'm going to take the text Saturday. I have a very detailed outline. Like if I had to, if I had to preach it right then mm-hmm. I could, I could get through it. It wouldn't be the most refined thing in the world, but at least I, I, I knew everything that I kind of wanted to say. Um, and then generally I get up pretty early on Sunday mornings just to get focused on what I'm, what I'm um, about to do. And I, I immerse myself in, in the text again, in the outline and really talk through, um, what I'm going to say mm-hmm. and work through that outline over and over again, uh, two or three times uh, before I go into the pulpit. So, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, as I interned with you for two years, there was something you would always say pretty much, uh, leading up to your preaching, just when you and I were talking about it and, had to do with the influence of the Holy Spirit on your preaching. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I mean, I think I say this in almost every context I find myself in, but, you know, when I'm approaching approaching a difficult situation or a difficult text or even a regular text, I recognize preaching is a, a monumental task every time. And you're pleading for the work of God. And no matter how you, how you feel as you go into the pulpit, you need the Holy Spirit to be working. And you get a plead that he shows up. Uh, cause otherwise it's meaningless. It's, it's, um, not going to do anything. So, um, and I'm always, I'm always amazed to see God show up and, uh, he does a fantastic job reminding me that this is not me. <laughs> uh, this is the Lord's work and, um, it's wonderful to see that. And I don't know whether that's what you had in mind, Aaron, but no, that's, that's exactly kind of what I had in mind. And <laughs> I remember when uh, we were having lunch one time, uh, you, me and our wives, and we were just talking <clears> about <throat> preaching and talking about kind of the emotions that we go through both in preparing the sermon and then delivering the sermon and then kind of the uh, Monday morning blues, as it were. Um, and you feel like, you know, you, you weren't, you didn't preach well enough. You didn't say everything you wanted to say, or maybe you said too much, that kind of thing. <laughs> something that your wife said, I, I'll never forget it. And I'm, I'm actually going to have a plaque and I'm going to make it and put it above my office door here. And it's just, you just said, get over yourself. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's 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 not about you. It's about the spirit working through you. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll I'll never forget that. And 
I, I think you model that well, not only in your preparation and in your delivery, but um, you often, when you're praying before you preach, you'll often say, you know, Lord, be with me, your jar of clay. Um, kind of just reminding yourself of your own position, reminding the congregation of your position. And um, I've appreciated that. And I've actually kind of used that same type of prayer um, before preaching. So I'm very thankful uh, for you and for how you model uh, humility when it comes to preaching God's word. Um, so I appreciate that. But uh, so we're talking about preaching and I think Joe's got a question about shepherding now. Well, before, before that, I did want to ask, is there, is there any way that uh, your prep, your preparation or your preaching has developed or changed since you came into the ministry? Like, did you used to manuscript and now you do rough outline or did you used to do no notes and then now you do an outline? It sounds like what you take into the pulpit is, is your detailed outline or just kind of maybe speak to that a little bit, if there has been any changes. Um, and then is, is that detailed outline, what you actually preach from, from the pulpit? Yeah. So there certainly has been a change. So whenever I started, um, you know, started writing sermons in seminary, um, Danny Proto was the homiletics professor at that point. And, um, I'll never forget one of the, my fellow students said, you know, I have no idea how to communicate God's word, but what Denny gave us is like a wonderful rifle in which you insert the, 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 uh, <laughs> the rifle round of the word of God. And uh, it's, it's well-tuned. It's wonderfully, it's super accurate and it's a wonderful method. And so that's the method I started using as a, you know, as a seminary student coming out of seminary. And, you know, he was always encouraging us to try to move away from manuscript um, and, and move to an outline. At that point, I was not ready to do that. I just, I'm a, like I said, I'm a very orderly kind of guy. I want to keep everything as it ought to be, and so I, I could not convince myself, and he could not convince me to break away from a full manuscript because I didn't trust myself enough. <laughs> and it, you know, and in that way, I needed to get over myself somewhat as well and recognize that the Lord, the Lord's got this. But at the same time, I wanted to make sure that I was carefully handling. God's word. And I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to botch it, so to speak. And, um, and so, yeah, so for the first, I don't know, a couple years, I was, I was using full manuscripts and, um, I began the process of trying to move away from it because I recognized that there was a, there can be a certain stifledness to a manuscript and just reading the text. And, you know, I do my best to try to memorize it and then, you know, so I could leave it, but there's still a stifledness. I wanted to try to have some more freedom. And so one of the things I did was I started taking sections of the manuscript and just bullet pointing it like illustrations, for instance, that's the easiest one to start with, right? Because you're just telling a story. And so when I get to the illustration, I just put like whatever the keyword is and it triggers my thought and I just tell the story, right? And then I go back to the manuscript and that, that kind of put my toe in the water for outline type preaching to the point where I was preaching from a very bare basic outline, you know, just five sentences. And I knew where I was going. There, there were, there were sometimes, uh, and I don't recommend doing this, <laughs> but there were some times where the text is so well laid out, right. That it's an outline in and of itself. And you can just run with that. And I've done that a, a couple times, but, um, but I, I think it really depends on what the text is for me anyway. As to whether I have a simple outline, a very detailed outline, or even a manuscript, um, you know, sometimes with like with narrative passages of scripture, I find it far easier to preach from an outline 
because you're you're telling the story, you're retelling the story, and you're applying the story. And so outline is just so much more natural for me anyway. When I get into Paul, I mean, that man is detailed upon detailed, right? And it's easy yeah. to get lost in the details. And so I like to keep things very straight. And so that's a super detailed outline or manuscript. Um, so uh, right now I'm working through Ecclesiastes. I'm, I have been relying more on manuscript than I have um, outline. Um, and so I work up on that detailed outline. Um, Saturday, Sunday morning, I'll get up real early and um, I'll basically just talk out the sermon and then just jot it down real quick. Talk out the sermon, jot it down. Um, but like I said, I could just, I could step into the pulpit and preach the outline. Um, but there's, there's tough stuff in Ecclesiastes that I want to make sure I got, I got it nailed down. So um, yeah, it depends. I'm not one, one way or the other. So no, that's good. That's, I, I think that's helpful for guys to hear because you can get in seminary. And even if it's not your professor who's doing it, you can just you get in kind of this bubble and you can think, well, this is the way or, you know, it's all new to you. And you find a guy that you like and that, that is the way. And just hearing that, you know, not only that there's been development in what you've done, but even to this point, you may still preach from almost nothing to a full manuscript, just depending on the text. So I. I think that's super helpful. These these are the kind of questions, you know, that that I find helpful still to be hearing, and that and that we hope other guys do as well. Um, do you what to, you know. Yeah, you, you encouragement. Um, I did not have a sense that I kind of like hit my stride, if that if that's an appropriate term to use, until like my fourth or fifth year of preaching. So don't you know? Don't be discouraged. It takes time to kind of find your own voice. Um, you know, a lot of times we, we right out of seminary, we're modeling, you know, we're modeling what we say or how we say it after other guys we've seen, which is not a bad thing. Um, but as the Lord develops you and gives you some more confidence, spirit, you know, spiritual confidence, um, you start to de develop your own mannerisms and ways of going about things. And that's good because you are a particular vessel and tool that God's chosen for this task. And he wants to use you in particular to communicate his word. And so, yeah. That's that's great, helpful. Um, so yeah, like, like Aaron said, kind of uh, going um, from preaching the kind of the primary uh, means of grace here to to broadening out a little bit, encompassing all of your duties as a shepherd of as an under shepherd of the Lord's flock. How 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 do you apply some of the scriptural uh, principles from shepherding? Some of the principles and duties of the eldership that are found in our blue book. Uh, how do you apply those uh, specifically or some helpful ways uh, you've found for shepherding the people of God, um, you know, in, in your ministry? Uh, well, one of the things I think is important is that we recognize that, you know, we're, we're a plurality of elders. Um, we're a session, right? And um, one of the interesting things about the, the vow that the ruling elder takes in particular is that there is a, there's a, some specific language in there related to their ordination that calls them to be, to be about the business of shepherding um, particularly. Right. And, um, and so there's a huge blessing and benefit to having men who are, who are on board with seeking to shepherd the, the sheep along with you. Um, and so, you know, trying to encourage them in that role. Um, we, we've been discussing a lot as a, 
I might say a newer congregation, you know, our, our church in particular is only about two and a half years old, um, you know, about new ways of doing things and going about things. And, you know, we're working up and have been working up a, a pretty detailed robust shepherding plan for each of us to participate in. And we're hoping to kind of um, apply that in this coming year um, in a newer way than we have before. And so I'm excited about that um, because we have, I think the last account clerk gave us 140 or so uh, members of the congregation. That's a lot of, that's a lot of people for one guy to try to get to and, you know, shepherd specifically. So um, especially if you have a big family at home, you know, there's my, I have a family of nine, right? Uh, Seven kids. And so there's my wife and my children that's eight members of the congregation that I'm already shepherding. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, and it's an important part of my shepherding as a pastor, right? Your family is, is huge in your shepherding ministry. And so um, to have those other men involved is such a blessing um, because the, the people are being cared for, they're being visited. Um, one of the things that I've I've recently started to try to do to make sure I still am trying to touch base with everybody in the congregation is I've been making lots of phone calls recently, and that's a that's a really, really easy but really profound way to connect with people, because it's easier to schedule that kind of time. Um, it's harder to convince people to let you come to their house because then, you know, they have to think, oh, I got to clean the house up. I got to make sure everything is set in place and we got to get our, our schedules together. And, um, but just calling people and having a 15 minute conversation, um, can really go a long way. You know, you get, get on the phone, ask them how they're doing, spend some, me about five minutes catching up, ask them how you can pray for them, spend five minutes about their prayer requests. And then you pray for them, you know, and spend two, three, four, five minutes in prayer with them and, that's a great way to touch base with the people in your congregation. And when you're done or as you're talking on the phone, you're taking taking notes about what's going on in their life, too. And so you can follow up with them about those things or the next time you talk to them, you can you can touch base with them. So recently what I tried to do is um, I looked over the, the members of the church and kind of broke them up into uh, folks that I thought, you know, I, I should call these people every week, touch base with them every week. There's some other folks that it'd be good. I can touch base with them every other week, or these are folks that I can touch base once a month or every other month. Um, And I kind of, I plugged them into my schedule. So if you pull up my Google calendar, you see like on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, a list of people, like I'm calling this person, I'm calling this person, I'm calling this person. So it's always there before me and reminds me of that, of that role that I have and the privilege that I have. That's good. Aaron, you got any, anything else on shepherding before we ask our theological question? No, no. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, George. We'll be mixing it up um, next month with the next round of guys, but we want to kind of end these some of these interviews with just like a, a fun theological question. Who knows? Maybe they'll be non-theological um, in, in the narrow sense later on. But uh, we wanted originally to do a question that Aaron and I disagreed upon so that we could settle the debate between us but we uh which sounds I, like uh you're you're kind of going for like a majority type of an answer um you know like a majority text kind of guy is that is that you the majority decide <laughs> right theology yeah, yeah. 
So to my to my surprise, though, Aaron, uh, Aaron agreed with me on this. I question. hate that you say that every single time you ask this question, you always phrase it that way. <laughs> I'm surprised that Aaron agreed with me. I just was. I just was. But what, what I'm as surprised about is so far we're we're oh for three on our previous guests agreeing with us. Kyle Borg, Barry York, and Nathan Eshelman have all uh, disagreed with us. So, anyways, uh, I guess that means uh, I could disagree with you guys. <laughs> Based on that list you just gave me, I better I mean, keep my mouth shut and disagree. <laughs> well, see, I'm not going to tell you what our position is until you give the answer. So okay. you won't know if you're agreeing with us or them. <laughs> but, um, anyway, so so the 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 fun question is, could Jesus have gotten ill? Like not. Obviously, we know there's no, there's no um, examples in the scriptures of him getting sick. Um, so kind of like with the question of sin, you know, it's a distinct question. Did he sin? Obviously not. But could he sin is is a little bit of a different question. So just a, a, a fun question. Do you think that Jesus during his earthly ministry uh, before he was raised in glory, do you think he could have gotten ill or not? Define ill. So um, gotten a cold, the flu, a fever, yeah, virus, bacterial stuff like that. But yeah, cold, flu, those things. So basically anything that would have diminished his uh, his health or his life in any way. Hmm. And specifically, yes. yeah, specifically of a, I guess, a viral sort. I mean, obviously, we know his health was hindered and his body was beaten, you know, as he's going to the cross uh, and even on the cross but yeah so so not so much you know stubbing the toe or having skin ripped from his back or or nails uh pierced through his body but um yeah sick cold flu things like that yeah well i think i'd 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 work i'd approach that question and work at it from two different angles one i would extrapolate backwards from the crucifixion and from the, his experience of death um the fact that that he he could die right now granted he had the power to lay his life down and take it up again right so he's he's sovereign over that but whether he he whether he that could happen to him or not is clearly yes right because it did right and so um, these physical things were were able to afflict his body uh, to the point that he would ultimately expire, right? And so, I mean, I don't think it's unreasonable to consider that there would be other physical things that could afflict his body in one way or another. Um, now, in you know, in in the sovereignty of God, they. And in the plan and purpose of God, none of those things would have tend or ultimately led to his demise, right? Because he does have the absolute sovereignty to to lay his life down and take it up again. Um, but yes, could those things have afflicted him? I think so, because he was able to be diminished in life in some form, but you know, at the cross. Um, so that's one angle I take it. The other angle or approach that I would take is that um you know, and and full affirmation of the fact that Jesus was fully man and truly man in in, in a state of humiliation. Um, I think we we have to affirm that that at least it was possible for him to be afflicted with a sickness or an illness. Now, the, all of that comes 
I mean, all illnesses we experience and everything that happens to us comes at the hand and sovereignty of God, right? So uh, would it have or did it? That's, I mean, that's the Lord's determination. Um, but could it? Yes, I think I think so. Um, all right, Joe, I guess we're heretics. I'll keep it simple that way. <laughs> so so you, uh, you did agree with Kyle yeah. and Barry and Nathan Eshelman. Ah, well, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So real quick, I'll just, uh, I, I, I've done this uh, before, so it won't be repeated every time. So originally what convinced me um, was, was an article from David Murray from Puritan Reformed. Um, quotes some guys like Athanasius and Goodwin and Smeaton and some of these guys. And essentially, uh, he argues from the fourfold estate of man that Christ wasn't created in the estate of glory, not in the estate of grace because he didn't need salvation, and clearly not in the estate of sin. So he was created in the estate of innocence with an upright condition. The comeback to that seems to have been from uh, some of the guys we've asked is that his environment uh, was different uh, than that of Adams in the estate of innocence. I think that's something uh, to wrestle with. But nevertheless, Murray and others appeal to the upright condition. Also, just some of the explicit statements of Scripture uh, that he was uh, the Holy One, uh, that he was that lamb without spot and without blemish, which in some ways is contrasted to the lame and the sick uh, lambs that could have been unlawfully offered. Also, there's an argument from Psalm 16 that if his body could not see corruption in death and in the grave, uh, how much less could it have seen corruption uh, in life? And, and then um, also Murray draws the distinction between natural weaknesses of finite man. So things like hunger, tiredness, you know, inability to, to stub the toe, um, versus unnatural weaknesses of fallen man, uh, the ability of the body uh, to be corrupted with viruses and, and bacteria and whatnot. So those are things I've found convincing, but it does make me rethink things, uh, knowing that, that our, four of our guests and, and men, um, you know, very sharp uh, theologically, have, uh, <laughs> have all disagreed with us. Uh-oh. <laughs> Those are some helpful mm. thoughts you brought up from those other guys too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's good. It's 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 fun. It's it's nice asking these questions that you know don't don't distinguish reformed men from reformed men and you know <laughs> things like this where you're not you're not really drawing lines. They're fun things that we can discuss without uh, creating controversy, if you will. So <laughs> well, thanks for asking. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I certainly hope it didn't create any controversy. I hope we don't see any papers written at Senate or anything like that in the, in, in the years to come. But uh, this has been a, another episode of the Blue Banter podcast. Our guest is George Gregory, pastor of Hope Community Reformed Presbyterian Church there in uh, Beaver Falls. So we thank you for listening. Whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God.